0: Exodus 25, one through nine and 40. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves in him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twin linen, goat's hair, tanned rams, skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for the setting, for the ephod and for the breast piece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. And see that you make them after, according to the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. Exodus 40, 16 through 38. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle, he laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars, and he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took his testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and the screen of the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of the meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of the meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle, at the tent of the meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of the meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished his work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out but if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys." A reading from the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew five thirteen through 16. You are the salt of the earth. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. A reading from the book of Acts, Acts 17, 1 through 9. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was custom. in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of, to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have also come here. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decree of Caesar, saying that this, there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Okay, you should have an outline that should say at the top, Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity series, GCF 19 and 20 version. Uh, That's important because uh, some of you have heard this at Wright State before and or other places. Uh, this is the opening teaching to it, which I tried to do last week and ended up uh, not getting to any of it because uh, I, on the very first verse, I ended up giving us a little history of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our day. So the title today is Rediscovering and Restoring His Pattern. I also have in parentheses rethinking because in terms of rediscovering, um, re-examining might be better. I think there's a tendency that we... uh, This this is something that I've noticed pastorally uh, for 45 years, is we tend to be more affected by the models of Christianity we've seen than by the scriptures by far. And so... um, what we were supposed to be, of course, in Bible-believing Christianity is we're supposed to uh, use the Scriptures to reexamine everything. You know, in Acts 17, 11, and 12, it says the Bereans were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians because they searched the Scriptures to see if these things were so. And it says they, I'm sorry, it says they examined the Scriptures uh, daily to see if these things were so. And so, um, the truth of the matter is, the context there is Paul and Silas had come to the towns of Berea and Thessalonica, and as they always did, God, there's a principle in Scripture where there's always a remnant. Remember when Elijah was upset and he said, Lord, they've persecuted your prophets, they've torn down your altars, and I alone am left. Ever feel like that? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and they're seeking my life, he went on to say. So uh, it, the Lord assured him that there were 7,000 that had not bowed the knee to Baal. And God's new movement always comes out of his existing people. And there's some of God's existing people that respond to the new thing God is always doing. And because God is alive... He's always doing new things. If, if, if the, the doctrine that we serve a living God necessitates that he's active and alive in the earth, he's not, as the deists thought during the Enlightenment, a God who created the earth, wound it up, and then just is watching, but not intervening. He's very active, working all things uh, according to the counsel of his will. And his will is to sum up all things in Christ. He is bringing a bride to his son. And so uh, God is very active, and he's, and he's got an agenda, which is clearly discernible in Scripture, and not necessarily the agenda that most Christians today think is his agenda. Uh, in fact, it's usually much bigger than what we think. So what we're kind of doing in this uh, series is kind of rediscovering. At the 9.30 uh, service, I went over the 15 points at the end, the major themes. I gave us a few two or three minutes on each point and, uh, so that you could know what to expect. So that's actually, at 9.30, I did part B. And I'm doing part A uh, of this teaching uh, at 1030. And we're going to create a whole new category on the website instead of just Sermon of the Week for, for this series. Because this series contains the vision of what Grace Christian Fellowship is here for. This is what we're shooting for. You know, it's been well said that if you aim at nothing, you'll surely hit it. All right. So, uh, Goals and and understanding your goals and understanding the steps that you need to take to get to the goals are some of the most important things for any individual people, for a family, and for a body of Christians. Of course, that applies to things like businesses uh, and so forth. If you don't have goals and if you don't have commensurate steps to get to the goals, that are trackable, uh, you'll go nowhere. You know, and of course the, the steps you need to take um, need to be commensurate to the goal. So what we have a tendency to uh, set our goals, let's say uh, our goal is two feet tall, so I'm doing that so in case uh, someone's listening, but I, I can do it with my hands up here. Say your goal is two feet tall, What we have a tendency to do is uh, set a number of action steps that, if we really thought them through clearly, would probably get us six inches of that twenty-four inches. And that's kind of human nature. We think, you know, I'm uh, uh, I need to lose ten pounds before Josiah and Teresa's wedding. And it's probably not going to be enough to just cut out the hot fudge on my ice cream. <laughs> I probably need to take a few more decisive and more uh, deliberate and uh, more difficult action steps. Right? So, all right, so re- that's reexamining so that we can rebuild, re- restore, uh, you know, I, I gave a lot of thought for 15 years. To, did I want to start another church again? And, you know, we really said, uh, my wife and I, if we could find a church that had say 50% of the things God's entrusted to us, uh, we won't start another church again. And, uh, cause I really didn't want to. And, uh, But the Lord had other things in mind, as Catherine let me know, in uh, the spring of 2003. (laughs) So uh, this was her idea. (laughs) No, it was the Lord's idea. He just chose to inform me through Catherine. So um, John 16, 13, uh, I spent all my time on that last week. But he, when the spirit of truth comes, uh, he will guide you into all the truth. So that is an ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, The truth has once and for all been delivered. Um, The book of Jude, which is a one chapter book toward the end of your New Testament. Uh, And Jude, of course, is the Lord Jesus' brother in the natural, James and Jude were his brothers. Uh, Jude says in verse three that we should contend earnestly for the faith that's been once and for all delivered to the saints and so um, as christians we believe with the rest of christ's body through the centuries that god is not writing additional scripture the canon was closed uh, with the 27 books that we look at as the new testament and the 39 books that we look at as the old testament But that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is not leading us and guiding us into all the truth, because all of us come to Christ with uh, various degrees of darkness, and because we're finite, our understanding of truth is always limited. But um, but God uh, has to open up the Scriptures to His people in every t- time period, every generation. And it's, it's a process that he takes us through from darkness to light, from deception to reality, uh, from foolishness to wisdom, from lack of insight to much insight. And he uses, of course, the scriptures, and, and we need to always be rethinking, reexamining, actually asking, are the things that I uh, believe... Uh, work, you know, correct. Uh, you know, there's a pop culture guy named Dr. Phil that uh, that made popular a phrase, uh, how's that working for you? <laughs> and uh, Jesus said it this way. He said, you'll know them by their fruits. And so... Um, Last week, I ended up giving us a mini history of the Pentecostal movement and the charismatic movement of this past century and a quarter or so. And uh, it, so this week, I'm just going to say this. by any, Even if you're not particularly charismatic or Pentecostal or even uh, don't see those things as clearly as you should, if you just see that the Holy Spirit, as Jesus said, will come to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment, he comes to bear witness of Jesus, no one comes to Christ except by the work of the Holy Spirit. So even if you only use this criteria, we are living in the greatest outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the history of the universe. And it's, it's like a storm that starts with sprinkling and keeps picking up in intensity. That's really what the last 150 years look like. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit is gathering momentum. And by any standards, you know, read uh, the book we use for uh, church history at the last, toward the end of the uh, Book. There's a chapter on the coming of Christianity to the global south, but the number of people coming to Christ for, you know, around 2002, for the first time in the history of the world, Christianity became the, the, had the most adherence of any religion in the world, and it's growing. So we're living in a time where there are three religions that are growing, uh, secular humanism, Islam. And, and Christianity, and almost all other religions are shrinking in decided ways. So, uh, so what we have to, what I'm submitting to us in this series is I'm, I'm saying the series is based on this. I think that most Christians are under, underestimating what God has in mind by pouring his spirit out so mightily and so abundantly, and that it's more than he would increase our worship. It's more than he would empower our evangelism. It includes those things. It's more than, he, than that he would open up the scriptures to our understanding. God has in mind nothing less than the restoration of all things, which is the last of the 15 emphases in this series. Everything that was damaged by the fall of man throughout the universe, God wants to bring significant measures of restoration and bring his kingdom into the, to every realm. In his kingdom, the church is the primary agent of his kingdom. The church, as we'll see in this series, is never uh, synonymous with the kingdom of God because there's always ways in which we need to have more of the kingdom in our midst. Even if we weren't a sinful people, because we're a finite people, we would need a greater manifestation of the kingdom in our midst and a greater knowledge of God and so forth. Lately, I'm considering doing a a series at 930 when I finish the psalm series. I still have a couple more messages to go on that one but I'm considering uh, doing a series on the attributes of God. And uh, uh, so lately I've been just cons- considering the whole idea that, that you know God is totally beyond finding out. Uh, he's incomprehensible is the theological term. So the truth is, by the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God, we can know things about God accurately, but we can never know them exhaustively. And so one of the joys of of human living is we're always on a journey and we're in process, and we have a tendency in our human nature, uh, some of this comes from our sin nature, some of it just comes from our uh, human nature uh, that's not necessarily tied into sin, but we have a tendency to want to uh, think in terms of destinations. And there's no destination in the Christian life except more of Christ. And there's, so you're, you're always on a progressive journey. And you have to actually learn to enjoy the process if, if you're going to enjoy walking with God. You're always in process. And we're, as a church, in the process of rethinking so that we can re-examine, so we can rediscover and we can restore, rebuild in a more biblical way. Now, uh, let's keep going. So, some things about restoring biblical perspective. First of all, one of the scripture readings today was uh, in Acts 17, 1 through 9. And uh, I included verses 8 and 9 because I thought it was interesting that Jason and Paul and Silas and the others actually had to pay put up bail money. Uh, If you know anything about our modern law system, uh, our our law system is actually based on two uh, ancient peoples, one, the Hebrews and the Old Testament law, two, the Romans. And uh, so many things in in our American jurisprudence trace themselves to the Old Testament. For instance, our our um, system of it's called an adversarial law system, where there's a prosecutor and a uh, and a plaintiff or, or defendant uh, is called an adversarial system, and that's based on the proverb that says the first to plead his case seems just until another examines him. If you only get to hear one side of the story, as say, for instance, if you just watch the news from regular media, you'll hear a very lopsided view of everything because they're committed to a worldview or an agenda. Everybody is. So part of, uh, part of uh, what God designed is that there'd be an adversarial system as the best way to, to give us a possibility of getting to the truth. So part of learning to read the Scripture is to learn to read it critically in the sense of not skeptically, like the higher critics, but in the sense of letting it read us and and re-examine where we're at based on Scripture all the time. So in Acts 17, keep in mind that we're within less than a generation of the resurrection of Christ his ascension 50 days later, 40 days later, and the outpouring of the Spirit called Pentecost in Acts 2. Uh, we're, We're within less than 40 years of that when Acts 17 happens, and they're accused in Athens and Berea and Thessalonica, they're accused of turning the whole world upside down. Now, I submit to you that any halfway honest reading of church history for the last two centuries would have to admit that in large part, the world's been turning the church upside down. I hope you heard that. I think we have to admit that the world's been turning the church upside down more than the church has been turning the world upside down. And that's clearly not God's original intention. They were actually preaching a different world because the Roman world was based on statism. All secular humanistic thought systems lead to believing civil government can can solve problems. We need more money for you name it. More programs. More government Civil government, they mean, and and uh, the truth of the matter is, civil government is a is a very inefficient means uh, to accomplishing anything. I used there used to be a T-shirt long before the Obama administration. Most of you aren't old enough to remember these things, but uh, uh, there used to be a great T-shirt that said, "If you like standing in line in the post office, you're going to love socialized medicine." <laughs> uh, because the post office has not historically been known for uh, doing a good job. That's why UPS and FedEx stay in business. And that's why I'm constantly writing letters to Amazon to please quit shipping my stuff by the U.S. Post Office, because half the time I never get it. (laughs) And uh, so, anyway. so. the, the, our first point in terms of rethinking about perspective is that, uh, the, again, the, the early church was accused of turning the world upside down, as Gen- Jennifer so ad- adequately read to us this morning, eloquently read to us, I should say. Um, the next scripture that Jennifer read uh, has to do with salt and light in the city. So most of you probably know this already, but the purpose of salt before refrigeration was salt preserved things from decay. And salt was so valuable commodity that Roman soldiers were actually paid in salt at times. And actually the word salary in English comes from the word salt because uh, that's how valuable salt was. Not celery. <laughs> uh, so. Be, salt as a preservative. Gets down to this. Anytime a culture. Is declining morally. Uh, is. Let's say when there's things like. Uh, there's an increased national debt. You ever seen the, the national debt clock. That's because there's darkness in the land and people actually believe the keynesian model of economics that you can spend your way out of a out of a downturn now that that's so irrational that it it, it's uh you know there's so many things that are believed by modern men that have so little to do with the scriptural approach to things but you know as a family uh I think you know that you can't spend your way out of economic troubles (laughs) you know if uh you're the husband and wife are meeting and going over the budget and things are a little tight and uh what should we do let's spend more money now brother greg you know uh submits that to Catherine. she never allows me to get away with that right (laughs) so she says if you want to spend more money run for congress And uh, then you can spend all kind of money that you don't have you can just legislate to print more The average family you say I'm just to let you know like if you start printing your own money like the federal government does you, that will be trouble to you um, they, they don't look upon that well so salt uh, it, you know if it loses its saltiness It becomes worthless and if you're living in a time where the, the, the you know, the divorce rates up, uh, people are living beyond their means and don't don't understand any wisdom about that. Whatever you want to say, a time when uh, morality is falling apart, it's because the church is being less than the church. It's as simple as that. That's on us. That's saying, like, if, before you start thinking, like, wow, I go to this Grace Christian Fellowship, and we tr- try to take God seriously, and we try to study, and so forth. You know, actually, uh, the, the church, when it's being the church, will actually hold the, mor- the moral decline in check. And we have big and well-funded mega churches today, but we're not holding the culture in check. In any way, shape, or form light the light of the world I don't know about you, but I have all, I don't like too much light too fast, <laughs> so I have over a hundred and fifty light fixtures, around 200 lights in my house. And uh, because I'm a little nutty about light being everywhere I might want it to be and thinking that through ahead of time. And all of them have the capability of going up gradually. But I don't usually, although I do this sometimes just because I'm... a little silly, and I'm like, well, I need to prepare in case I can't see when I'm old. So I, I do a thing where I walk around places with my eyes closed to make sure I can still do it. But uh, uh, or I pour my tea or whatever with uh, the old, put your finger over the tip of the cup so you can tell when it gets there. I'm preparing in case I can't see well in my old age, because uh, <laughs> uh, actually my sight is going down ever so slightly ever, as you get older. But anyway, uh, I have all kind of lights, right? And most of us use a light. If you get up to go to the bathroom at night, you probably don't go all the way from your bed to the bathroom in pitch darkness. If you do, you might stub your toe on the corner of the bed or whatever. Uh, So the truth of the matter is, when we're in darkness, we usually seek a light. And nobody... Nobody is coming to the church for answers to any significant social problems. Nobody even thinks that that the church should have the answers. But the church should have the answers about divorce. The church should have the answers about raising kids. The church should have the answers about debt crisis, except for the average American Christian has the same amount of debt structure as the average American non-Christian. Right. So a, a light is something you go looking for when you have darkness, and we live in a time where darkness abounds over the whole face of the globe and in many spheres of life is increasing. Yet nobody is thinking that the church has the answers because we're not producing the fruit thereof. And Jesus is saying that's not the way it's supposed to be. I'm just trying to help us see that we need a rethink. I'm trying to open our eyes to the fact that we, uh, that the depth of our rethink has to be a lot greater than we've understood up till now. A city set on a hill, a city is a culture, is a community, it's a way of life. So much of our current Christianity, uh, especially in the megachurch models, is kind of a see you on Sunday. There's not that much depth of community. Um, Now, churches are trying to address that with things like uh, small groups or whatever, but uh, we're far from a city at this point. Point C, gates are for defense. Now, I wish I had more time on this one. I might take two weeks on this particular message. In Matthew 16, uh, boy, I really do need to walk around. (laughs) This is so hard to stand in one place. Uh, In Matthew 16, there's only one incident in the whole four Gospels where Jesus intentionally takes the disciples outside of Israel. In Matthew 16, they leave northern Israel, Galilee, and go north of there to the, to the, the base of a mountain where Herod's temple was, or Herod's uh, palace was, where, where King Herod lived. And at the base of that mountain, there was a, a worship site called the Gates of Hades. And you can't understand stand the, uh, the lesson here unless you know that. At the gates of Hades, they practiced Greco-Roman worship, and they worshipped uh, a thing called a faun. Um, what's the other word for it? Pan? And uh, it was uh, kind of a half-goat, half-man thing. It's the thing that's in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia uh, when they go through the wardrobe. They talk to that half-goat, half-man. What, what's it called? Uh, there's a there's faun, F-A-U-N, right? And so um, p- the way they worshiped it was they actually had sex with goats. Now, that's pretty sick, but that was uh, what, what Jesus was getting after was a very important lesson there. And uh, he, takes the, he takes the disciples there and he asked them, who do people say that I am? And the disciples say, some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets. Jesus says that, you know, the focusing question, I call it when you're doing evangelism, who do you say that I am? Because it's always about who the individual, whenever I'm sharing with a person that's like Hindu or Another uh, lost or false religion, I I always tell them. So, you know, in Islam, they believe in a definition of Jesus, a non-biblical definition of Jesus. But they believe Jesus was a historical figure and they believe he was a prophet. And they actually blame his followers for getting it wrong and claiming Jesus was the son of God. So in Islam, Jesus is just a prophet who's been badly interpreted by a thing called Christianity. <laughs> that's the Muslim view of Jesus, and uh, they've wrongly said that Jesus is God. And of course, in Islamic view, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is uh, is a heresy because they would uh, the idea of three persons in one being they would say that's polytheism and Allah is one. That's the most important point in Islam. And so they would say that Jesus was a flawed prophet, and Abraham was a flawed prophet, and Jesus' uh, followers really got it wrong. So the issue in Islam is who who do you say Jesus is? That's always the issue. That's the issue in your own walk with God. We have less than a fully biblical Jesus in our minds and our hearts. And coming to encounter that Jesus more fully is what it means to grow in the Lord. So, again, Jesus takes the disciples to the gates of Hades, and then after Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says, Well said, Simon Peter. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven, the the fact if somebody realizes that Jesus is the Christ... That he is God in the flesh that he is the righteous one and so forth they realize that because the Heavenly Father by the Holy Spirit has showed them that now that may have came in a nice Bible study with uh, John Bradbury sitting down with some guy he works with and, and uh, or taking him through a couple of Christian books like more than a carpenter source one I gave John Bradbury um, you know That that those uh, tools that we use uh, are well and good, but it's the Holy Spirit who uses the tools. It's nice if they have a nice Bible study with one of our good people, but uh, if the Holy Spirit doesn't move on them, nothing happens. That's why learning to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's flow when you're ministering to people is of the utmost importance. Because all we are is midwives cooperating with God in a process that He alone can do. Right? So then Jesus goes on to say, you know, after He tells Peter, My Heavenly Father revealed this to you, He says, You're Peter which is a plan where you're a small rock and you're Petras and upon this Petra, this large bedrock, I will found my church, or I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, which is where they're at, will not prevail against it. Now, this is completely opposite of the way most Christians think of it in our days because the gates of Hades, gates are for defense. Right, So he's not saying that you'll be able to hold out against all the demonic and holistic uh, onslaughts against your family and against your faith and against your heart and all the temptations that come at you from wherever they come from, all sorts of places, Internet, media, your own flesh, whatever. He's actually saying that he, it's, a, it's a completely opposite picture. He's, it's a picture of a militaristic church attacking the gates of hell and liberating the captives. And so the reason he says, I will build my church is because he's, in Greek it's ekklesia, and that's the word in the Greek version of the Old Testament called the subduogen, that that the scriptures use to describe Moses' congregation. And Jesus is saying a contrast statement. He's saying, I'm going to build a different kind of congregation. Moses built a congregation, and where you guys are at right now is not only are you captive to a foreign government, but you've been retreating from and hating the world around you for centuries now. The greatest sin of the Jews before Jesus came was not their legalism or whatever, it was their hatred of the Gentiles, who they were supposed to be God's light to. And the reason Jesus is ticked off in the temple when he turns over the table of the money changers is because they had set up their tables in a place called the court of the Gentiles because they were supposed to reach out to the Gentiles through that court and bring them into the Holy of Holies. And they saw no particular purpose for the court of the Gentiles because they had no burden or mission for the Gentiles. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to build an entirely different kind of people. I'm going to build a people that goes to the lost world around us and instead of like, oh, those nasty sinners, don't go to the bar with them. It says, go liberate them. Go set them free. They, no one else is coming but you. You know, if I uh, ever get famous for anything, I hope someday that it's the saying, no one else is coming. God's answer is Melody Burks and Amber Poon and Alyssa Ferguson and Daniel Burks. No one else is coming to liberate the world around us except you. The reason growth in Christ and discipleship is so fundamentally important is because you can only take them as far as you've gone. If the blind lead the blind, they'll both fall into a pit. You have to, as a, as a Christian, be able to say with the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. Paul tells Timothy, the things you've learned and seen and heard in me, if you do those things, the God of peace will dwell with you. How often, I, I challenge you to look at your life this week, journal a little bit, and say, can I really say Live the way I live, and I can promise you the presence of God in your life. That's what a Christian is supposed to be able to say. That's, that's one of the goals. We all have three ministries to, the, to, to, the, to God in our love for him and our service and worship to each other, the church, but especially the church we belong to. There's degrees of commitment, you know, you, you, whenever you have uh, opportunity, be good to all Christians. And whenever you have opportunity, be good to all men. Our third ministry is to the lost. And we can be much more effective as a missional community than you can be doing your own thing about it. Who are you working in concert with to liberate the people that are behind the gates of Hades? That's exactly what Jesus is saying. The church, we've come to a place today where we think our, our role in evangelism is to once in a while invite somebody to our church and hope the professional people get them saved. That's why we have altar call evangelism. I say, I you know, I've had lots of altar calls at Applebee's and Bob Evans. <laughs> those great temples of the Lord where you can sit in a nice booth and do a Bible study. So, um, lastly, um, is the challenge to being more noble-minded about these things, which we talked about at the 930 service. So we'll move on. Because I, I want to maybe get through a little bit more today, even though we're running late. Uh, point number two, Roman numeral two, re- rediscovering the pattern. So, um, last week, one of the scripture readings was out of uh, First Chronicles uh, 13, 1 through 10. And uh, it's the whole st- issue where, uh, if you remember, the Philistines had captured the Ark of God in the days of Eli the priest. And uh, remember when, uh, when uh, Eli's two sons were dying, Hopni and Phinehas, one of them, the wife, when she heard that, uh, that they had lost the battle and the Ark of God had been captured, she went into labor, and as she was dying, she named her son Ichabod. which means no glory, the glory has departed Israel. And that's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 23 when he cries over the city and he spreads out his arms and he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather your people together like a mother hen gathers the chicks but you would not have it. And so, I'm telling you, your temple is being left Ichabod. That's exactly what he says. I, the glory of God is now departing, and then he goes on in the next chapter to predict the terrible destruction that will come upon Jerusalem within the next generation. Because after the resurrection and from the the day of Pentecost till the the destruction of Jerusalem is 40 years, and it's a 40-year transitional period where the word of God is going out first to the Jews in every city. That's why Paul, Silas, others went to the synagogue first. God always takes his new people out of his last people, and, they, and uh, those who move on, stay in the center of God's purposes. Those who say, well, I wasn't brought up that particular denomination or that particular way, they miss out on what God is doing in front of their very eyes. And during that 40 years, God was starting to build the new people of God called the church. And he waited till it was well founded enough. And it was initially a mixed movement of Jews and Gentiles. They became so thoroughly mixed that uh, by, by the second century, the Christianity was looked at as, as a Gentile movement because the Jews had intermarried, because they were now interpreting not to marry un, an unbeliever as not to marry someone who's not a follower of Christ. Not, they were no longer thinking of it just in terms of biological Judaism. And so there were many Gentile Jewish marriages. That's why I love that we have international, interracial marriages Because what makes us one is Christ. It has nothing to do with where you were born, what color your skin is, what subculture you grew up in. It has everything to do with where Christ is in your life. Don't marry someone less deep and less committed and less involved with Christ. But I could care less if they're tall, thin, short, fat, white, black, green, yellow... Uh, curly hair, no hair, uh, or whatever. So, so again, so Ichabod, back to back to that story. Uh, after the Philistines take the 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 uh, Ark of God. Uh, Eventually, so we go through the whole time period of Saul's rise and fall and David's rise and so forth, and the ark has still not been recaptured. So God takes the initiative, and he starts sending judgment on the Philistines, and they start getting uh, hemorrhoids. (laughs) That's how uh, some, I think the King James interprets it. So, uh, some, tumor, some, some modern translations say tumors. Uh, I like the hemorrhoids. <laughs> it just it's, makes the story much funnier. But, uh, uh, and uh, so they actually send the Ark of God back with an offering of gold and hemorrhoids. <laughs> and I uh, hope they melted down that gold and use it for something else. I I can't think of having like a display case in your living room. Here's my golden hemorrhoids. <laughs> I got them from the Philistines. But uh along with uh here's a couple of the original David's foreskins from the Philistines. <laughs> the Bible's just uh wild. But uh you know, we're not the Bible's not boring. We are. Uh so anyway, uh <laughs> So, you know, the Lord uh, starts judging the Philistines. So they didn't read Deuteronomy. So they send the Ark of God back on a cart, right? They basically point the cow, cow uh, that's, that's, or the oxen that are drawing the cart the direction toward Israel down a particular road, slap them on the behind, and they carry the, the Ark of God back to Israel, now, sometime later, uh, the, uh, David decides to bring up the, the Ark of God to Jerusalem. But guess what? The Israelites hadn't read the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And so they thought, hey, the megachurch model, it's this whole new way of doing stuff. So we're going to apply the Philistines' marketing principles and we'll bring the Ark of God up with a cart. So much more modern than that old-fashioned, labor-intensive way of using four Levites with poles, which I don't even know if they even knew they were supposed to. It seems from the Scripture as if they didn't know that. So as a result, you know, carts have a way of falling over. I don't know if any of you are football fans, but yesterday there was a slight accident uh, where in the Oklahoma game they use a, a wagon called a schooner and after they score a touchdown the schooner whips around the field and they turn the corner too fast and, and, uh, and the schooner like tipped over and all the people went through, got thrown 10 or 15 feet out of it and uh, one of them had to be treated for slight injuries but they, they were all fine thankfully. But uh, that's what, you know, the ark of God actually starts to tip over, as you know, as Uzzah sticks out his hand to steady it, and uh, he get, get, the Lord kills him. And uh, I always like the Joseph Garlington's phrase, Lord, it's no wonder you don't have more friends the way you treat the ones you got already. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so uh, David doesn't know what to do, so he just leaves the cart where it was at Obed-Edom's house. But, of course, the presence of God brings great blessing when we're godly people. The presence of God actually brings great judgment, if you're not. But uh, the presence of God starts to bring blessing to Obed-Edom's house. And so David says, hey, we got to figure out what happened and bring him up. So they actually get this great idea, let's read the Bible. And they discover how they were supposed to have carried the ark. Now, that's a long story to say, we can't just carry the presence of God any old way we want. In this modern Christianity, where we haven't even thought about what is the church from a biblical point of view, is abysmal. It's, uh, that's a bad word. It, it's, it's, uh, it's abhorrent. The truth is, most, most Christians have not thought about biblical, biblical ecclesiology. Abysmal was a very wrong word, but it doesn't actually apply. But um, anyway, um, I was searching for a word, but I, the wrong one popped out. Um, it, you know, we, we're living in a time when we, the, most Christians don't have much of an ecclesiology. And we think what we're looking for in a church is the right kind of liturgy or the right name on the door, or right denominational affinity, or, or any number of things that the Bible doesn't stress at all. Instead of the people God's jointing us to in covenant relationships because of relational reasons and because of a calling to bear fruit together. Right? So all that's to say Uh, You know, in 1 Chronicles 15, 13, David sums up what happened in 1 Chronicles 13, 1 through 10, with the carrying of the ark on on a cart. And he says, because you did not carry it the first time, he's talking to the Levites who were supposed to have carried the ark, four Levites using two poles, one on each end of each pole. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule, is the ESV. The King James uses due order, which I think is uh, probably the best. Uh, NKGV says proper order. I believe the New American Standard, someone could look it up if they want, says prescribed way. So, you know, we can't just carry it any old way, is the point. We really have to ask ourselves time and time again what is the church and i i want to tell you this for the 45 years i've been a christian uh at least every five to ten years i've grown in some biblical understandings about the church that i was missing before and one of the reasons i've always been uh, only willing to start new churches although we were part of a couple of denominational churches and so forth for periods when we weren't in a church planning mode, but it's, I, I want to be free to, as the Lord gives us more light and understanding will change. You know, the current liturgy we have, for instance, on the Lord's day, we do all the elements that you'd see in a Roman Catholic, Lutheran or Anglican liturgy in a very non high church way. Because there's been a huge anti-liturgy movement in evangelicalism that started around the 1830s and really grew in intensity in the late 1800s. And most evangelicals have been brought up to think things like regular scripture readings in a cycle, creeds, weekly communion. All of that is not being led by the Spirit and all of those things were clearly practiced by the new testament church and we only do the things in liturgy that we can trace to the to the bible but creedal statements were recited in the times of paul and peter and they grew into more defined critical statements for the first several centuries until we had the apostles nicene creed the symbol of chalcedon and the Athanasian Creed, and so forth. Uh, We tried the symbol of Chalcedon. That's a little bit difficult for recital. But uh, nevertheless, what we're trying to do is do liturgy in a low church way so we can help evangelicals who've been taught against liturgy to gradually come into seeking liturgy. That's the reason we do it the way we do it. And it's a strategy that's working. Most people that are sitting in these pews right now were former evangelicals who had predispositions against liturgy when they walked in our door. I've actually been told by people if they'd have known we had real wine, they probably wouldn't have came back. (laughs) You know, the first time I heard that there were Christians that drank grape juice, I was probably about 10 years in Christ, and I said, what? they drink grape juice you can't mess around with god's word like that and just do whatever you think it says and change it for your cultural christianity but that's exactly what we have today so that's why we do this weird thing that no one in our church can actually stand where we have both wine and grape juice and we actually kind of know to give the grape juice to the new people and and most parents don't want their kids drinking real wine so we Honor that and give the kids the grape juice too. But a little wine won't hurt. A, my kids drank wine when they were two. So <laughs> that was part of growing up in our family. I wanted to, you, you had to learn how to drink beer and wine with, with Dad. <laughs> so, and you, you know, but you know, we'd wait, wait till you didn't need a bottle anymore until you graduated to a sippy cup. And uh, <laughs> then we'd teach. All right, so uh, we're past time, so I'm going to start uh, start with rediscovering the pattern next week. Um, today we mostly covered the reason why we need to restore some biblical perspective. Um, you know, there was a you know Gallup in Barnab- what's the Barn not Barn, what is it? Barna, Barna yeah, almost said Barnum Barnabas. I'm brain dead today. Barna is a a survey people who study the church and trends in the church and so forth. And I haven't updated my reading on this, but I read uh, this kind of stuff back in the early 80s. And at the time, they were looking at the most influential institutions in America. And they rated the church somewhere around 26 to 28 behind the Girl Scouts and the Boy Scouts. Now, actually, I think the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts have fallen off a little bit. But we're supposed to be the salt of the earth. We're supposed to be attacking the gates of Hades. We're supposed to be the most influential body of people or or institution or organization in the world today. And if you don't think we need a rethink, it's just because you're not thinking. You're not putting much attention into the biblical idea of what the church is. No one is coming to the church to look for answers to the marriage problem and the divorce problem. No one is coming to the thinking of coming to the church for economic issues and so forth. So at least we covered the Roman numeral one uh, today. The whole thing of why we why we need to recapture some perspective and we'll get back we we started in on rediscovering the pattern but i developed my points too long so we'll do we'll pick it up with rediscovering the pattern next sunday